Welcome to the Writer's Room, where the funny writers who sit in funny rooms and write funny stuff for other people finally get to talk. Here's your host, Emmy-winning writer and comedian, Jeff Cesario. Oh, this is going to be fun today. I haven't seen this guy in a long time. We're going to catch up and we're going to be uh, talking about writing and stuff too. It's all going to meld together. We even already uh, connected on an estate sale basis. Uh, this guy's an Emmy winner. He's written for everybody from uh, uh, Martin Short to uh, The Nanny to Futurama to Family Guy to Comedy Central Roasts. He's done it all. Mike Rowe. Mike, how are you today? You look fabulous. Thank you. Thank Just you. like I yes, remembered I it, too. The swelling's gone down a little. <laughs> and uh, You sound like my mom. I'm- my mom used to do that. Classic passive aggressive thing. Like, Mom, how you feeling? Better, better. For <laughs> what? I, I I didn't know you were sick. <laughs> nice touch. Yeah, I, I get often confused for your mom. It's an odd thing. I don't want to get into it, but it's uh, shockingly similar uh, brow line. I'll I'll, mm-hmm. I'll give you not brow line, brow line. I, let me articulate mm-hmm. that a little better. <laughs> well, look, that's why my shot is cropped. <laughs> Now there's a title for an autobiography. My shot is cropped. That's right. <laughs> All right, listen. Uh, there's so much to talk Hello. about. I want to start in the roasts, just because we yes. have not had anyone on the show who's done the roast. Now I have done some roasts as a performer, as a stand-up, but not on TV. Just the classic sort of Atlantic City, Freddie Roman hosted roasts. Uh, but I haven't uh-huh. done. I've never written in a roast room. How is that? It is a blast um, because, uh, you know, as you know, I started as a stand-up comic, but writing these hard jokes for celebrities is just a fun way to, like, when you watch it happen in the back of the room, it's just a fun way of, like, almost watching yourself do it but not having the pressure of having to do it. But it is a it's, – it's 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 a difficult process because it is like roast to roast is different for me. Sometimes if I'm available, I'll, I'll be hired for two weeks, let's say. And every day for two weeks, I'll write 50 to 70 jokes a day. Wow. Right? For two That's weeks. Output. Yeah. So you just keep going and going and going. You don't like the fun part is you don't use editors in a way in your brain. You just go. You know, you, I would, uh, part of my process is I would just, I would just go to old clips from uh, former roasts and listen to the rhythms of, of the comics doing the jokes. And, uh, and out of, you know, two weeks of writing, let's say 50 jokes a day, like a great showing would be if I got six or eight jokes on the whole roast. That's like out of 300 jokes. If you are batting whatever percentage that is, if I were better at math, we'd have a joke here, but it's it's down in the points, point something. That's yes. still great writing for a roast. How many other guys in the room with you? How many other comics, writers, I should say, in the room with you on a roast? Um, it varies, and I, I like to talk about how that I was one of the original gangsters, on uh, there was not a lot of people at the time when it started that knew how to write that rhythm and that formula, and there was just like four or five or six of us 
that really just like for me, I was brought up on the D Martin roasts, you know, and Don Rickles. And I just knew the rhythm of all that stuff. So um, it sounds like so just, it's rhythm heavy. That's the second yeah. time you've mentioned it. And as a former drummer, I always feel that there is a lot of rhythm in comedy, in every style of comedy. And that roast rhythm is really just like an Ali jab and then a cross. Just it's and and it's the same rhythm. That's yeah. impressive to go back and study. Just listen to it. It's almost like listening to music in a sense to warm up for writing. You listen to the yeah, I mean, there's a definite, yeah, there's a definite musicality to it, you know, and uh, and then uh, as time went on, it seemed like the younger writers picked up on it, and there was, you know, Jeff Rose host, hosted the uh, that TV roast show and stuff like that, and suddenly I would start showing up for the gig, and then there's like, you know, twelve writers in the room, you know, twenty to thirty year olds, like they've picked up on the formula, right, so, right, you know. Um, it's got to be I a do bit like, like to... a, a being a ventriloquist in a sense. It's, you write the jokes. <laughs> Some poor sap celebrity has to deliver them, but you're in the back of the room <laughs> going, hey, not bad. <laughs> yeah. It got to the point, like one of the most fun things was, uh, like I for a long time was like Jeff Ross's joke whisperer, you know, when he'd do the roast. And it got to the point where I would sit in the audience and text him jokes live while he was sitting at the dais to bring wow. him up when he goes. That's that a, rush. a blast. Yeah. Yeah. That um, is just mainlining jokes right there. I mean, yeah. you talk about the immediacy of stand up. As a writer, you often don't feel that immediacy. That's a situation mm-hmm. where you do, where you just texting him a joke while he's talking mm-hmm. he takes a break while somebody else talks sees the joke decides yeah what the hell and throws it out that's impressive yeah i mean you could you could see some shots i don't know if they were on camera but like when he before he went up you would see him looking down he'd be sitting at the couch waiting to go on and he would kind of glance down and review the jokes and see what he wants and doesn't want that um, is so cool uh, Mike Rose, my guest, he's got a book out. It's called "It's a Funny Thing." Uh, his life. You know, I happen to have. Look I at that! Copy. Uh, <laughs> there it is. I, uh, uh, I just got it. I've skimmed the first uh, 30, 40 pages, and it's already fascinating to me because it's not just about uh, your experiences in Hollywood; it's about your experiences in life. Let me tell you some. That picture of you and your two sisters when you're a kid, that is priceless. That is a beautiful yeah. shot. <laughs> um, well, I talk about, as a kid, learning the power of laughter, you know, the power of being funny, you know. Um, it was kind of a stressful household when I was a kid. And we found that our family would find unity and kind of solace uh, around the TV watching sitcoms. It was like those time moments when, okay, we're kind of getting along. So this was the days of all the family and, and, and welcome back Cotter and those kind of shows. And then especially bonding with my dad, watching standups on TV, on the Ed Sullivan show or whatever was happening at the time and just laughing at Rickles and everyone from Charlie Callis to, you know, Freddie yeah. Roman and Jackie Vernon. Know. And 
all of yeah, those yeah. guys. Yeah. What a um, what a cool way to bond. It's somewhat similar experience that I had. Um and I imagine a lot of people had was the comedy could kind of soothe the very rough edges in any family and give you a chance to uh, connect. Yeah. Is that what drove well, you know, to stand up? Yeah. Cause even like, I remember as a, in grammar school, 10 or 11 years old, and there was this bully like waiting for me after school at different times to just beat me up for no reason. And I was able to avoid him until one day I just face to face with him. And just this thing came out, like all of a sudden I turned into Woody Allen. I didn't even know who Woody Allen was, but I was like, <clears throat> before you beat me up, can uh, <clears throat> I go home and change my pants? So my mom will yell at me if I get them dirty. <laughs> and he just, you know, gave me a, he just was disarmed. You know, he yeah. just gave me like a friendly punch in the shoulder and then left. And I'm like, yeah, there's there's power in making people laugh. There's value there. Absolutely. Did you feel you had an affinity for it as a kid? Um, well, it sort of uh, it started when I would hang out at my dad's bar. He had a uh, this dive bar in my hometown in Waterbury, Connecticut, a little factory town. And he had this really like, you know, down and dirty blue collar factory workers and pimps. And, you know, he had go-go dancers and this whole thing. And I'm eight, nine, 10 years old, hanging out with my dad at this place. And <laughs> there were fights and, and, you know, so it was a great place, but he had like, of course 10... it's a great place. <laughs> if, yeah. When you're that age, you know, it's like, it's the coolest place to be. That's like an and, action. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And my dad had like 10 beer league softball teams. So I was like the bat boy scorekeeper. But so the winner of the games would go to the winner's bar. So it would be like really hanging out with these, you know, 20 something, 20, 25, 30 year old guys, softball players. And they were all really funny and sarcastic and would make each other laugh. And, and I, you know, I saw how much fun that was of like that, that camaraderie through humor. And it just kind of kept going. And even my dad, you know, loved corny puns and jokes. And the the first joke I remember was how did the, you know, ethnic, whatever ethnic, you know, at the time was Polish, but <laughs> how did the Polish guy, which later became blonde jokes, I think, I don't know, but how the Polish guy break his leg raking leaves? He fell out of the tree. <laughs> so, when you're eight, it's the perfect joke. So that, you yeah. know, that was the environment I was in. Well, there's a beauty to that. If you're growing up in a small factory town, which weirdly I also did, but in Wisconsin, part of the, a big part of that camaraderie is that level of humor a big part of survival is that level of humor these this is a generation that most probably lived through the depression and or world war ii and came out of it into this roaring economy with factory jobs in factory towns and the way you got along was exactly what you just described you played right. softball you had some beers and you crack jokes on the new guy, whether he was Italian, Polish, black. It didn't 
matter. You just cracked. Right. And and yeah. that's the that's kind of the way it happened. And 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 then you see this, you're listening to the jokes. At some point you say, uh, I'm gonna try stand-up, which led to literally the the entire rest of your career, which involves all those great shows, sitcoms, the great animation, everything. Uh and it all comes from uh telling jokes. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, yeah. And I fell in love with stand-up so much when I was 15, 16. And again, I think off of the heels of like, it became that bonding thing with my dad. But then I just, you know, I would, I bet you did the same thing where my little cassette recorder, I would record every, every comedian I could find on TV and just play the tapes over and over and, and again, listen to like what we talked about, the musicality of yeah. those comedians. And I would just kind of, break down the jokes and try to understand why they were funny. I would try them on friends, you know, and I'm, you know, I'm 15 and talking about my lawyer and my mother-in-law, but you know, <laughs> you know, a joke's a joke, right? Um, That's great. <laughs> um, so the, so the, the sort of the dividing moment that, that sort of thing that happened that was like, maybe I could really do this. I, uh, during that time, I was watching Dangerfield on The Tonight Show. I, I hope everybody remembers Rodney Dangerfield, but he had these killer one-liners, I get no respect. and So I was memorized by that as a kid and recorded and listened over and over. And then when he came on The Tonight Show, he he talked about uh, his club in New York. It was like the, one of the few times you saw Rodney Dangerfield with Carson kind of talking about his life. And it, yeah, so he talked about Dangerfields, the nightclub in New York how he started in the Catskills and he used to go by the name of Jackie Roy. And I'm kind of taking in all this information. And I thought, um, I'm going to write jokes for him. I'm going to write a couple pages of jokes. I'm going to send them to Jackie Roy at his club in New York. And I'm 16, 17, whatever. And I got my mom's big typewriter and I clunked out, you know, like 15, 20 jokes or whatever. Put him in the snail mail of the day and just, you know, weeks go by and I kind of forgot about it. And uh, and then one night after dinner, I'm in the, you know, my finished off panel, it's bedroom, you know, in the basement. Sure. And the phone rings and my mom answers the phone and she's at the top of the stairs. She's like, Mike, there's a, a Rodney on the phone for you. I'm like, what? What? And I pick up, hello, hello, my little 17, hello? Hey, Mike, it's Rodney. How you doing? You okay? You all right? How are you? How are you? I'm like, yeah, hello? Yeah, um, yeah, I got your jokes. You know, they're pretty good. You know, they made me laugh. You know, but they're not for me, but they're good jokes. You know, you should do that. You know, and he, like, gave me this pep talk for, like, 15 minutes. Wow. On the phone, you know, and I go, yeah, you think so? And um, I want to do stand-up, too. And, oh, yeah, uh, come to New York City. You got to come. To, don't come to my club, though. It's no good. You know, but, hey, you go to the improv. You know, he gave me the list of all the clubs and and then, uh, like a week later, a handwritten letter from him saying, you know, it took me eight years before I was funny and it's going to take a long time. And if you want to do this, you got to get ready to fail. You know, it was crazy. Wow. You know, when you're 17 years old, it's like, wow, okay. You know, especially yeah. like in a little factory town, you know, it's those are like, you know, people on TV were like fictitious, <laughs> you know, it's. Absolutely. So, and and you're aware enough to know that if you have the guts to dream, 
it's still going to be a long slog, even if you have no idea what the specifics of that slog are. When you're in a town like that, you go, okay, if I'm in a dream, I'm probably dropping 20 years in it. <laughs> and then well, it connects so quickly and so wonderfully to a major star like that. And, and, and I'm going to say it right off the top. A guy like that's not picking up the phone unless the jokes are good. That's the power of well, well-written joke. That's the power of listening to those rhythms and just letting your brain kind of ease into the whole thing. That's impressive. Well, you know, that's why I wrote the book in a way, because I thought, you know, what would be the book I wish I found when I was 17, when I was thinking about getting into the business? So what would that journey be like? You know, so in a way, I look at it as an inspirational thing for like, if you're a kid in a small town, like, is there a, a way to do it? You know? So that's why the book starts with me in my hometown and my childhood and the steps it takes to get to where you want to go. So I even like to think people would like it in a sense of just not even showbiz necessarily. You know, it's like, why not reach for the the big thing and see what happens, you know? Yeah, um, I remember there was a, a literally a woman who just worked in the admissions office at the University of Wisconsin. And I was a uh, a sophomore there and I just transferred in and I had zero idea what I was going to really try to do, even though I think in my heart of hearts, had I been honest with myself, I knew it was comedy. Uh, but at the time I didn't, I couldn't connect. And I just remember her saying, I was just handing in paperwork, <laughs> you know, making sure I was enrolled in school. And she just said, well, you know, um, you got to shoot for the moon. Uh, the very least, you'll land on a star. And I just always <laughs> remembered that. I just thought that is pretty cool. So, yeah, to yeah. get that level of encouragement. And so to write a book, and the book is called It's a Funny Thing uh, by Mike Rowe, my guest, um, that could lay out a roadmap for anyone who's still dreaming the dream is uh, is pretty impressive. Let's let's get to a place because I'm sure you're killing it successfully, uh, at least on New York terms, as a stand-up. And by that I mean you're getting spots, you're working. Uh, that's not the it, on the surface. That's not the easiest of environments to crack, especially when you came into New York. But I'll say this: as a kid from the Midwest who came out to Los Angeles. I started in Minneapolis, came to Los Angeles, but I would go to New York and the place I felt the most at home was New York. I just uh -huh. felt so at home in those clubs and the other comics seemed to get it. You know, they didn't think I was aloof or weird. They understood I was just some weirdo shy kid, you know, but like that, they understood it. You know, I felt at home. Right. <clears throat> It, it's such a more interesting sense of community in New York for me always. And I started and I ended up in New York just before the boom. So there was not a trillion comics. So it was a little more of a tight knit group. You know, it, it, it was this really cool camaraderie. We sort of felt like a special group of people where we're doing something that people don't aren't really doing that much. But of course, it was within the next five years, it was every, you know, bowling lanes and every, you know, 
sure. disco became, you know, um, it's funny. I remember in New York uh, on the east side, there was a short-lived comedy club. It's an, oh, Rags to Riches, it was called. Does that ring a bell? Rags to Riches. It's not. Thank goodness. <laughs> and it, it was it was probably when I was there two months before it was a strip club. Because they still had the mirrored floors and the stripper poles. But now we're doing comedy because we put so a you mirror You felt right on. at home. It's like having the go-go dancers at your dad's bar. That's right. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> the guy asked me, and I didn't like going across town. I want my clubs around the west side of New York. And this was on the east side. And to go across the park and then, you know, and then go back. And then that. so yeah. he's like, he's just, he was kind of this mob guy. And he scared me a little bit. <laughs> so, uh. Yeah, he said, just come over to nine o'clock. We'll open the show, and then you get you home and get you out of there, whatever. And I'm like, all right, I got to do it because he may have put a hit on me. I don't know. <laughs> so I show up at the club, rags to riches. Apparently, was still in the rag stages. Um, no audience, right? It's it's five of nine. I'm sitting in the back. I'm going up, and then on stage are these two life size stuffed clowns, right on either side of you. God. And they're spinning. They're like on these, you can just hear the motors of this clown just ring, ring, ring. There's, there's like one person at the bar, completely empty. This mob owner guy is pacing at the bar and he's got his partner there and he's, and it's like 9 15 and I'm already like, oh. and then you see him getting more, more exasperated and he just looks at his partner and just goes, Joey, shut off the clowns. <laughs> That is the uh, antithesis of send in the clowns. That's right. That's another Shut name for a memoir. The clowns. <laughs> <laughs> That's stand up compared to Broadway. Uh, what what a brilliant story! So you're pounding away. You're doing stand up in New York. You're in a a, spec- a special niche that then blows up nationwide. Um, and when do you make the move to Los Angeles? Well, as as I was doing stand-up in New York, I knew instinctively, luckily, at age 24 or 5, that, like, I was not going to be George Carlin or Robert Klein or Pryor. You know, I was not going to be this great comedian. So I started to think, well, what happens when I'm 50? I, I don't want to live on the cruise ships. It's not – I hated the road. Anyway, I, I, was, yeah. I was 25 and I hated the road. And I, I had been writing all along anyway. I started to teach myself how to write half-hour scripts. Um, did you use writing a book? Jokes. Did you just watch? What was the learning process uh, there, to, to, to write there was some books. There's some books, but the thing that kind of turned it for me, like in New York City, they had all these cool bookstores. Oh, yeah. You know, used books and crappy books and posts and shit like that. And I found a an actual TV script, which I had never seen before. And it was like the, you know, open it up and the, the gold light, you know, filled the room because it was... Sure. It kind of broke the 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 mystery of it, you know. So that's the, the script. That's how you do it. And uh, <clears throat> my favorite shows at the time were uh, it's Gary Shandling show, the first Shandling show, and then there was the Newhart show. show. Yeah, and then the Newhart show in Vermont. Right. And I studied those shows over and over, and again, I had recorded them with my little cassette, and then I would listen to it. For hours, over and over, listen to the musicality of it, listen to the rhythm of it, and right, listen to right. and let it try to get it to burn into my brain, you know. So for practice, I wrote two of the new heart 
shows and wrote three of its Gary Shandling shows. And then uh, I got sort of a outside job on Saturday Night Live writing for a weekend update for when Dennis Miller was there. And I met Alan Zweibel there, who created It's Gary Shandling, your right. Gary Shandling show with, uh, with uh, Shandling. And um, one and of the like, smartest men in the world, incidentally. Yeah, yeah. Such a sweet guy. And I told him, I said, I wrote three spec episodes of It's Gary Shandling show. And he said, well, send me the best one. I go, okay. And I can't promise anything, but just, you know, and I go, look, at least it's getting read. And uh, he calls me like a week later. He goes, I want to set you up with my manager. You should talk to him. And all of a sudden I have a manager. And he, my manager knew enough about me, how I liked the old school shtick and stuff like that. And and he said, what's going on is like, there's no openings for It's Gary Shandling Show, but Zwei Bell is starting a new show about the Friars Club. Uh, it's a sitcom, you know, with like all these, you know, Norman Fell and Norm Crosby and right, Jackie Gale. Sure. It's um, so he said he wants to hire you for that show. Well, and he goes, but you got to move to Hollywood. You got to move to L.A. And I go, well, OK, I'm moving. <laughs> and within, you know, six or eight months, all of a sudden I have my first job in Los Angeles. I like I'm, how guys you know, think that's going to be a real hurdle. You know, I, I, yeah, I, I know. The, the catch is you got to move to L.A. Okay. <laughs> Don't miss part two with Mike Rowe coming next week. <laughs>